Well, I hope we understand that the Sermon on the Mount is not just for an elitist group of super disciples, maybe for preachers, but it has to do with every citizen in the kingdom of God. And may I say to you this morning that there is no position higher in that kingdom than being a child of the Lord. All of us are important to him. Each one of us is concerned, is a concern of his. And sometimes it is thought that what we're doing here this morning is sort of nice, but it's not the important thing. The important thing is to live a moral, ethical life. The problem with that idea is that you have just jerked the foundation out of all ethical and moral living because you have taken away the worship of the living God. As we came to the end of chapter 5 this morning, he said, Therefore you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus was not there referring to sinless living, perfect life. He's talking about the fact that you have learned already to love those that love you. Now I want you to learn to love those that hate you. And then you'll be like your father. Because he makes his reign to fall upon the just and the unjust and the sun to rise on both. And he loved us and we were his enemies. Indifferent to him. Concerned only about ourselves. Living a life that was self-fascinated, self-directed. And still he loved us. And when we were in that state, his son actually died for us. And he proved his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. If we want to follow him, we're going to have to learn the first commandment too. And that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Paul, in analyzing the tragedy of the Gentile world in the first chapter of Romans, says... That knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. But their senses heart were darkened. And then he lists a lot of tragic, immoral activities that followed. The reason people live unethical, immoral lives is because they do not know God. And they do not worship him. So what we're doing here today is important. We're laying our hearts before him. We were singing praise and adoration. And we are remembering who we are and why we are what we are because of the death of Jesus Christ. Of course, we ought to think about those things when we're not in these assemblies. They need to overshadow us always. And so we walk beneath the shadow of the cross. So we come to the end of chapter 5 wondering how in the world are we going to live this life. 
It seems so challenging and so difficult. But I remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians when he says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think through the power that works in us. God will enable us. But we must stay in very close touch to him. And our lives must be filled with him. So when we come to chapter 6, we're going to talk about absolute devotion to God. And Jesus will warn us about some things that will prevent that. And the first one is the most obvious. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward for me, your Father, in heaven. What he's saying there is, you are worshiping yourself. You're concerned about yourself even as you propose to worship God. And when you want men to know who you are, it's not men you're serving. It's because you want everybody to know how fine you are. If you were God's servant, you'd serve other people. It's been interesting to me to observe people coming to assemblies like this, waiting to be served. It's all about them. And about whether the songs that are led are the songs they like. Whether the exhortation of the preaching is what they want to hear and makes them feel better about being how they are already. What if everyone came to this assembly with that attitude? To be served. Who would do the serving? It's obvious that each of us really So we come here to be filled, truly. We need to be instruments of that for others. And so it's important for us to be here. Do not ever say, well, they won't miss me. That's not true. What you can do is what you can do, and it will be missed when you're not here. So we come together. To remember the great God who in his mercy and grace has saved us from ourselves. So the first problem that we face in worshiping God is pride. I think Eve was seduced especially by that. Fruit of the tree was good for food. And it was beautiful to observe, but it was good to make one wise and to be, as the snake said, like God. We want to be obligated to none, able to choose our own courses, never held to account for anything we decide to do. That is the postmodern generation. What I think about God is what God is. You think whatever you want to think, but leave me alone. But God is not a subject. He is an object and real. And we have to come to grips with that fact. Pride keeps us serving ourselves. It destroys relationships. 
it makes it impossible for us to worship God because we will only see people below us. We have no friends. We only have servants. And if people are unwilling to serve us, then we do not want to have anything to do with them. They are our enemies. What Jesus is dealing with here is people who are worshiping, supposedly, coming to assemblies like this in the synagogues. And in this particular case, they were coming and giving, as we have done this morning. But what they wanted was people to see what they were doing. Witness my generosity. If you want the praise of men, you can have it. But you will have it at the cost of having nothing from God. It's all about God this morning. From God's perspective, it's about us. That's true. But from our perspective, it's all about Him. And that needs to be our attitude and disposition as we come together here. Remember, how wonderfully you sing is not something you do to elicit the praise of other people. The prayers that are led are not led in order to impress this audience with our great skill and ability in praying to God. And whatever we do here, we're not the audience in this case. God is the audience, and it's to Him that we offer all that we offer. I want to remind you as I begin this study of chapter 6, that we have been dependent on Him all our days. And that everything we have that's good has come from Him, not from ourselves. He's the one that gives us life and breath and all things. And we have cause to praise Him even for that. But those of us who are here today have cause to praise Him because He has delivered us from ourselves and our sins by the death of His only Son, given gladly and joyfully because He loved us so much. So take heed. Don't do what you do here or anywhere else for that matter just to be praised by men, which is what the Pharisees were guilty of doing. So he suggests to them, verse 3, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Interesting kind of statement. It means you do it unconsciously without thought of what anybody else is thinking. You do it with God in mind. You do it with the purposes of God in mind. And that's the totality of the thoughts that attend this act. That your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. I remember a brother's prayer some years ago, and I won't say who it was or where it was. But he said... As he prayed that we were glad that we were able to go to so-and-so's house and to give him this amount of money. <laughs> I think the Lord already knew that. 
But the intention was that he didn't want other people to fail to understand what he had done. Not everybody is that obvious. We sometimes say to people, don't tell anybody about this. I don't want anybody else to know. And then we spill it directly. Of course you want somebody to know. But we need to want God to know. It doesn't make a whit of difference what other people know. It's what God knows that's critical. And so we need to keep our minds on that. And when you pray, he says, verse 5, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. That's where the Pharisees found the time of prayer to occur, when they're on the street corner. And then they became very pious. And when they were in the synagogue, that was the time, because there are other people there to observe. Now we must understand, as we read these words, in which he counsels us to go into our chamber, go into our closet, as some versions have it, and pray. You can go into your closet and pray and think to yourself, I sure do wish other people knew what I was doing here and could appreciate the kind of person I am. This is a figurative statement. Go in. We need to be in our closet all the time. We need to be thinking of God all the time. We need to be addressing everything that we do to God and be concerned about Him and pour our hearts out to Him. And we ought to do that in this assembly. And we ought to do that on the street corner. We ought to do that in the restaurant. Wherever we are, we are not praying to be seen by men. We're in our closet. We're having a private conversation with God as a child of the living God. So... When you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. But you can do that everywhere. It's an attitude of mind that's being discussed here. And then he goes away from the Pharisees for a moment, gives them a little relief, and turns to the Gentiles in verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and we have shut you, I'm sorry, verse 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. The heathen deities had no concern for people whatsoever. And the thing that most heathen people, the Gentiles, were concerned about is to avoid smallpox or whatever else that God could give you. And you've got to placate them and keep them satisfied one way or another in order to avoid disaster. The gods of the Gentiles were as wicked as they were themselves and certainly unconcerned. So they had certain formulas. And they thought if they would repeat these formulas often enough, mindlessly, that somehow or another the gods would be satisfied and leave them alone. Or perhaps on some moment they might actually do something good. But that is not true of the true God at all. So we don't think we can influence him by repeating certain things. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Somebody says, well, if he already knows what we need, why don't he just give it to us and we don't have to ask for it? Well, trust the Lord. Even if I don't understand that, I know that I need to ask Him. 
I need to ask him because I need always to remember that I need him. I need always to remember that I'm dependent upon him for everything. And it, there are some things that God cannot give you unless you ask for them. Because it's a question of your willingness to accept them. And longing for them, he can give them to you. Joy, goodness, and all those great things that are characteristic of the Christian life that are so, so precious. So, he gives us a model prayer. Which some people have turned into a ritual. This is not the Lord's prayer. He could not have prayed this prayer because he's not guilty of any trespasses. But he gave it to his disciples who in another place said, teach us to pray. Didn't say teach us how to pray. said teach us to pray. And we need to learn this spirit of dependence and this spirit of longing conversation with God. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father, and that depends upon the relationship of children to the Father, which means you've got to be a citizen in His kingdom if you're going to say, Our Father. But He is our Father. This is not stressed in the Old Testament. But the idea of God as Father is certainly stressed in the New Testament. And we need to sense that. We're a family of God. Our hearts are bound together because we have the same Father. Our hearts are bound together because we have the same Savior. We share something that is so deeply and profoundly important that it binds us together much more closely than blood would do. And so consequently, our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. If we set apart the name of God because of who he is, the name of God is everything that's characteristic of him. And we need to deal with him in that way. Reverential awe ought to be our spirit. We need to have confidence in Christ to go to the Father and to know that he cares about us, but we always need to deal with him in reverential awe. Don't get... Before God with your head half on. You don't come into the presence of the living God thinking about something else. We need to come hallowing his name. And that will be expressed by this petition. Your kingdom come. The Greek word for kingdom. Both in the, Jew, both in the Greek Septuagint. And also in the New Testament. Refers mostly to the, to the power and sovereignty of the king. And it's a matter of people respecting that that is being prayed for here. Your kingdom come. I know we've been told we must not say that. But I think in this text it says your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the same petition. May this world recognize the sovereign rule of God. May they come to worship him as he ought to be worshipped. That's the purpose of this petition Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our first concern as we come to God in prayer is to praise Him and to pray that His will will be done. Focus upon Him and then you can talk about what you need. That much much seems to be evident in this prayer. Now He says suddenly, give us this day our daily bread. Earlier Jesus has said he knows what you need before you ask him. But we need to ask. We need to ask because in asking we are 
We're saying, I know that I will not be able to get this for myself. Do as I will. It's you who provide me with the skill to work and opportunity. It's you who provides me the health to do everything that I do so that I cannot say when I've worked and gotten money and I've bought my own bread that I've done it myself. I have not done it myself at all. I think we need to remember that we came into this world so dependent that somebody else had to change our diapers and feed our food. We couldn't do a thing. Americans are so disposed to be self-dependent. It is a lie. We are dependent upon God, and when we receive our food, we need to thank Him for it. Give us this day our daily bread. And then the important one, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Read in those we've sinned against. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. That is so important. We may just get sort of robotic about it. Before we end the prayer, yes, I remember, forgive us our sin. Our personal, private petitions, as well as petitions in the assembly, need to address the things that we have done that are not right. And we need to be pleading with God to forgive us when we have been too selfish. We need to be pleading with God to forgive us when we have been so proud that we could not bow our heads before him as we ought to. We need to ask him to forgive us when we have not been as diligent to preach the gospel of his son as we ought to be. And every other thing that's involved. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us which states that if we do not forgive those that sin against us, he will not forgive us. And do not lead us into temptation. Does that mean, Lord, please don't let me be tempted. You know what I'll do if I'm tempted. No, that's not the thrust of it. Do not lead us into the clutches of temptation. The promises of the Lord in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians are still applicable, of course. That he will not allow us to be tempted above that which we are able. But with every temptation will give us a way of escape. That we may be able to what? To endure it. We pray for strength to endure. So that we will not fall prey to temptations that come. Help us, O Lord, to do that. And then the last phrase is not in the original text. Verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men your trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now he takes up the matter of fasting. We sort of deal gingerly with this subject of fasting. We don't know quite what to do with it. The Jews had only one ordained fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. You were to afflict your souls. It was a day of fasting. Other fasts are declared during the period of the history of Israel, but that was the only official fast day in that tree. But the Pharisees fasted twice a week, and they wanted you to know it. When they were fasting, they'd come out with their hairs looking like a hair 
hoorah's nest, as my mother used to say, and they'd be looking glum and everything they'd have would be bad because they wanted people to know I'm fasting. Well, it doesn't matter what people know. It matters what God knows. And you don't need to be advertising it. But it's such a subtle temptation. When we do so badly want people to realize how much we're sacrificing for the Lord and what kind of great pious uh, activity we're involved in. And that is a subtle temptation to sin. We're not doing it to be seen by men. And so they're warned about it. Is there any fasting in the New Testament period? Yes. Someone said, I heard of a church that fasted and prayed when they appointed elders. Isn't that strange? No. It's in the bath. It's in the book. And I can read in the 13th chapter about when Paul and Barnabas were sent out, they fasted and prayed. Would it be all right for us to do that? How would I object? And on what grounds? I'm not telling you to start having fast here. But I'm telling you that it was done in the New Testament by gospel preachers and apostles. And maybe we ought to think about that. It's not weight loss, brethren. This is not weight loss. Prayer, it was always associated with prayer. Or maybe with sorrow. This thing was done. But I'm not going to say anything more about that, but to say it's in the book. But he continues. Verse 19. Second thing that's a threat to our loving God, loving things. Have you ever thought about this like in this way? I've asked myself, what if I lost everything I had materially? Lost house? Automobiles, everything. I lost everything. Would I still feel whole? Or do we not identify with these things as our worth and our significance? Do we not think the kind of car I drive and the house I live in, the clothes I wear and all these things I have in the bank, that's who I am. If that is who you are, you are nothing. And therefore, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. You can't keep this. I don't care how much you get. You're going to leave it behind. And if you build your life on these things, you're going to lose it all. And you'll lose yourself. But we are a materialist society. And we are constantly bombarded with advertising that says, if you don't buy this, you don't know who you are. You will never be happy. These are things that are essential to life. Of course, it's a total lie. I tell the story of my days in Nigeria. (laughs) When you often saw people walking to market, and I went to Ethiopia, and they're walking to market miles no wonder those people are great runners. They walk into market carrying loads and burdens. And then a man who's had to walk to market and carry all his goods finally gets money enough to buy a bicycle. A bicycle. A Raleigh bicycle. And now he can carry a pig, 
or however much, and he, and he just pedals along, and he's moving, and it's wonderful, and he never thought he'd ever get one, and so he's delighted. And one day, he sees somebody come by on a motorcycle. Forgot about his bicycle now. That fella can move. And so he works, and he gets a motorcycle, and he's the pride of the neighborhood, and he's running, 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 going, going, going. But he's got five children, or maybe he's got seven children, and they can't all ride on the motorcycle. So sometimes a little old Volkswagen bug goes. He's been drenched by those torrential downpours, and it's just not there's not comfort all the time. And so he said, "I just that's what I need. I just need that." And so he gets that, but he's still got seven children. We had a Volkswagen bug when we were in Nigeria. And the, and the Nigerians would say, when they were all crowding in, we got about ten people going to ride in that Volkswagen. Don't worry about a thing. Well, they thought I was worried about them crowding. I was worried about the springs being busted in that automobile. But they weren't worried about that at all. But that man's got the motor, so he got his Volkswagen, and somebody comes by in a big Mercedes Benz. There's no end to the wanting. They will never satisfy. You cannot fill the God-given emptiness in you with these things. And we have to be so careful, and I have to be careful, that I don't begin to identify who I am with these things. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal. We found out about moths. Some of my suits have been moth-eaten. Maybe I'm not wearing them often enough or something. but I didn't know that moths could do that. I don't even see the moths. And they're getting in there and taking hold of it. You can't keep these things. You're going to leave them behind. Why are we building our lives on them? Why do they take first place in our lives? Why are we letting those things decide for us what we're going to do here, there, and everywhere? It's craziness. It's insane. So do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, what can I take to heaven with me? My automobile? No. I heard about one lady who wanted to be buried in her Cadillac. It'll be rotten just like her own body before it's over. But it's, just, it's craziness. But what can I take to heaven with me? My relationship with God. And what He has made me to prepare me to live with Him in heaven. That's all. And if I do not have that, all these things are absolute tragedy. So don't let things destroy your love for God. All of us have to examine ourselves about this. And he says in verse 22, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, you're full of light. Full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. How great is that darkness? I, in this case, is heart. Whether you are totally committed. Whether your allegiance to God is absolute. No exception. Always what God wants comes first. Always in my decisions what God wants comes first. In the dreams I have, His dream comes first. And I'm totally penetrated and dominated by Him. That's what being a child of God and a citizen of the kingdom of God means. 
And if we're going to be morally, ethically pure, it'll be because we have loved God supremely and loved Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Single-eyed devotion, in other words. But now the last thing. And we sort of look on this as, well, this is important. But it's not critical for the spiritual life. Listen to what he says. Verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Does that hit a nerve? Are you ever worried about whether you're going to have enough, not just today, but what about tomorrow? I know we've got enough food today, but what about tomorrow? Look at what's happening in the world. Maybe I'll lose my job. Maybe sickness will strike my family that will cost us huge amounts of money, and how will I ever pay it? There are all kinds of possibilities out there. But Jesus said, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or your body, what will you put on. These God knows you need. But we say, to, well, that's natural for us to worry. I know it's natural for us to worry, but I want to tell you what it says to God. I know you said you'll never leave me nor forsake me. I know you have said that my needs will be supplied, but I do not believe a word of it. I'm concerned. I'm worried about it. I'm anxious about it. I know that's the inclination. I've had it myself. And I finally caught myself in that and said, you need to stop that. And started maybe a little bit better not worrying about things. I remember I had two cars one time. Still have two cars. Neither one was working. And I was despondent about that. And then I thought, you know, God could solve my problem very easily. Just take both of them away from me. No more car trouble. Do not worry about those things. Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You know you're more valuable than the birds. You would always say so. Which of you by worrying, this is a good question, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? That's a good question for Bunnings. You know. <laughs> but as I said in earlier times, they have proven beyond any doubt that size does not matter. And not important to the real things of life. We can't do that. Why do we worry about things over which we have no control? You need to turn that over to God because He does have control. But when we worry and are anxious, we are truly saying to God, I don't trust you. Aren't we? I know you said you would take care of me and I don't need to worry about those things, but I don't trust you. And he's done so much. And he sent his son to die on the cross. And we think he doesn't love us. Incredible. So it's worry sometimes that separates us from 
really loving God and trusting Him. He says also, So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? That's an indictment. It's an indictment of me when I'm anxious over things of which I have no control. And that's true of a lot of things. Who can I trust in this? I must trust God. He's proven His care for me and His ability we know and His love now we know. Therefore do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Okay. Final word. There is something you can worry about. There is something you can be very concerned about. There is something you can really throw your heart and soul and mind into with all you've got and be deeply concerned about this. And he gives it in the next verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That we can spend all our energy emphasizing every day. Seeking God. Seeking the righteousness of His kingdom. Wanting always to please Him. Wanting never to displease Him. Concerned when we fail and trying to correct it every time we do. You can throw your heart and soul into that. And that's really the central theme of this sermon. You shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do not let human pride get in the way. Don't let things get in the way. And don't let anxiety over things get in the way. That's what Jesus said. Isn't this great stuff? It's challenging stuff. It challenges me. It's easy to preach it. Oh, it's easy to preach it, but to do it and to live it. I preach a lot of things that, I, that's, that hit me hard. And I, I, can't, I can't just preach the things that don't touch me. That's hypocritical. I have to preach the things that hit me and that I need to take, pay careful and total attention to. So... Thank you for listening so patiently. This is a good group. Attentive, encouraging. I like to preach here. And I love you. As I said earlier, I've boasted about this congregation to other people. You need to be like those churches. That is a good church. And I appreciate very much each one of you. And I appreciate the invitation that's been given me to come here by the elders. Tonight we'll extend the real invitation of the sermon. We'll be on chapter 7. We're just hitting the mountain peaks. But if anything in, in this study of what Jesus said has touched you and moved you, then pray about that and just get on it. If it has moved you to take care of some offenses that are openly known by these brethren... 
then the first thing you need to do is ask God to forgive you. You've got that right. He's your father. And the next thing you need to do is tell these brethren, I want you to know I'm not going to go that way anymore. I'm done with that. And I'm very sorry about it. I hope you'll pray for me. We all know what it is to fail here. This is not a group of people who never sinned. You know, they've never had a failure. Not one. No, we all know what it's like to face up to failure and to try to get back on the track and do what is right. We all know that. And we are sympathetic to our brothers and sisters who are doing that. You think nobody else has your problems. You just don't know. It's your ignorance that keeps you thinking that. We're all in this thing together. By the, God, by the good grace of God, we're going to succeed because he certainly wants us to succeed. But if you have a need in that way, you could take care of that tonight, this, this morning. But if you're not a Christian, we're surely not glad you're not a Christian, but we're sure glad you're here. And willing to listen to things that Jesus has said. And our invitation hymn says, come to Jesus. Not come to the church here. Not come to me. I can't help you. I need, I need help. But come to Jesus. He is able. Listen to the words of the great Son of God. These words are spoken to help. These words are spoken to encourage. These words are spoken to move you out of your emptiness and to to bring you into fullness. And and that's what God wants to be done. So, if you're not a Christian, we got water. (laughs) That's no big deal. People think we spend all our time thinking about water and baptism, water, water. The big deal is faith in God. The big deal is a broken-spirited repentance. That's the big deal. And when that happens, the water is easy. We'll bury that old person in a fluid grave. And by God's grace and the cleansing blood of Christ, you'll come out of that water fully and absolutely forgiven of every sin. You can't beat that. If you're ready to confess your faith and to say, I'm ready to serve the Lord, I'm ready to do what he says, whatever it is, that's my commitment, then we can help you here this morning. While we sing this hymn, come to Jesus, and indeed we hope you will, while we stand and sing.